responsibility, and so we want to understand the, uh, what that doctrine is, the doctrine of the two kingdoms. But before we do that, uh, I want to do uh, three weeks on uh, how to prepare for worship and how to get certain things out of worship. Uh, today, I want to talk about, well, first let me tell you, next week, what I want to talk about is how to uh, uh, train our kids to be worshipers. And uh, this is for everybody, even if you have grown kids or no kids, you think, well, this is just for the parents. We, we want especially all the parents to come next week. And that means for the ones, the little ones who are being watched in the nursery, maybe those without kids could watch the, the kids next week so that the moms and dads can sit in here and uh, be uh, helped and encouraged on... Uh, how to train our kids for worship in the pew, parenting in the pew. But it's, it's also for the rest of the congregation because, you know, we're, we are one big family, and having little ones in the pew is, uh, we all bear some responsibility in that. And so the week after that, we're going to talk about family worship, how to do family worship, a uh, very huge part of the Reformed tradition and our piety. And uh, so I want to give you some tools on that. And that's, even again, if you don't have kids, it can still be useful uh, in you know, have, how, how, do, how do we do our devotions. Um, I want to give you some encouragement on that. Today, I want to talk about something, though, that I've been dying to talk about for quite a while, and uh, it's this. How to listen to a sermon. How do we listen to a sermon? How do we listen to a sermon? This is a huge part of our Christianity, right? A huge part of the Christian life. We come week in, week out, uh, listening to sermons every week. How do we judge a good sermon from a not-so-good sermon? How do we tell what needs to be uh, present in a sermon? And so the, the, these are some things that uh, I think will be really helpful for us uh, as we come to worship each week uh, to get the most as, that we can out of that worship service. Because um, preaching, while it is preaching a, a sermon, while it is monologue, you know, that is, it's a one way conversation. Uh, It's not a dialogue going both ways. Uh, It nevertheless is a two-way street. It is not only the preacher, but it's also we as listeners. And uh, a lot of times we can, well, afterward, we should seek to get as much as we can in thinking about what we heard and digesting it. Um, But I think sometimes we, we ask questions maybe amongst ourselves as spouses or family or friends, that aren't the most helpful, uh, such as, um, did you like the sermon? Um, You know, the truth is, whether or not I liked a sermon is really irrelevant. Something true could be preached to me that I needed to hear, and I might not like it. So whether or not I liked it, conversely, I could really like something that was not true. And really enjoy something. I mean, why do you think Joe Osteen has an enormous audience? People like what they're hearing. 
So, you know, did you like the sermon? That's one that I want to encourage you never to ask because it's not, uh, it's not helpful. It's really not helpful, you know. Did you like the movie? It's fine. Did you like the concert? It's fine. Did you like the meal? It's fine. You know, common things. But when it comes to God's word being proclaimed, whether or not I liked it isn't really the most helpful question. Um, also, another, I think another one that, that we tend to ask, I know I've asked it many times myself, um, is uh, what did you get out of the sermon? And that one, too, isn't the most helpful because it can, you can start going all over the place. And so what I want to do is give you four questions to ask of every single sermon. Every single sermon. It doesn't matter who the preacher is. You have to ask these four questions. Now, before I give you those four questions and we talk about those, um, let me say that this is important for us, especially on Reformation Day, to consider. Because the Reformation, one of the things the Reformation recovered was preaching. Preaching was done in the church. You can find you know, the sermons of the, the early fathers. Uh, there's quite a few. Um, you know, John Christendom and uh, Cyprian and many others that are, have been on record, Irenaeus. Uh, there was preaching in the Middle Ages, but uh, with, the, with the, at least in the West, with the Roman Catholic uh, understanding of the Lord's Supper, developing into what is, what was, what is now called the Mass, uh, there was this exaltation of the Mass. It's, it, would take, it would be a very interesting study for us to do, but basically at the end of the day, what happened was the table is exalted over the pulpit. And that's why if you go into uh, a Roman Catholic church or a cathedral, what you'll always find up front, like if you go to the Vatican, um, you'll see in the, when you walk into the Vatican, well, all the cathedrals are shaped like a, like a cross, like you might, you might know. They're all shaped this way. The one in Milan, the one in Florence, the Vatican, which is kind of cool in some ways. But, you know, you walk in this way, and it's beautiful all the way down, and then you get up to here. But what's here in the middle? The table. Yeah, they call it the altar. So the big event at a Roman Catholic worship service is the sacrifice of Christ again in the, uh, the Mass. The pulpit is usually not always, but usually off to the side somewhere. And there may be a little homily, but this is front and center. Um, when reformers began to uh, make churches and Protestant churches began, I mean church buildings, um, you know, there's a lot of thought put into it. There's really nothing wrong with having the shape of a cross necessarily, although it's not necessary. And there's a lot of things that happened. You know, there's, there's reason why the... the uh, the, the ceiling is uh, lifted up and high. It's to give us a sense of God's transcendence. It's not necessary. You could have it flat, but it's better. If you're going to make a roof, make it like that, regardless of the acoustics, because it gives you a sense of the transcendence of God. Uh, if you're going to make seating, don't make it like a stadium. Make everybody on the same level, because whether we're rich or poor, you know, uh, slave or free, Jew or Greek, we're all one in Christ. So that's why the Protestants did that. And the thing that should be up and up high is the pulpit. Uh, we don't preach from down here. You can, 
It doesn't mean you don't have to, but if you're going to build something, bring the pulpit up. And what the Reformers did is they began to build churches, and as the Protestants, they began putting the pulpit up here, up high. So it's the word. Sacrament is also important. It's the visible word, but it's down lower. Because we're underneath the word as it is given. As the word goes out, we are all one, but the pulpit should be up. That's why a lot of Protestant churches, the pulpit's way up there. Uh, We actually lifted this thing up some years ago, and I wanted it really high. The problem is we couldn't get that cross off the wall because it's so bolted in there. And if if we had it up high and the pastor went into the pulpit, it would look like he was on the cross, and you wouldn't want that. Uh, because we couldn't remove the cross. So we did build it up about that high. And then you may have been here that one Sunday when Dr. Godfrey almost died uh, and tripped over the robe that was too long for him. And he uh, fell. And so we thought, well, you know, Dr. Godfrey is getting older and some of our visiting preachers are getting older. We're all getting older, so maybe we'll lower it and keep it a little safer. But ideally, you want the pulpit up high and center. And big, to emphasize that it's God's preached word that we need each Lord's Day. The word is what we're going for. We're we're going to worship for two reasons. One, well, kind of three. One, to worship God. We go there to worship him, which means even if you feel like, eh, I don't feel like going, go because you're going to worship God. If you say, well, I can worship him on the golf course. No, you can't. No, you can't. Not like that. Not in the Holy Communion of saints. Not when God assembles his people together. He likes it when we all get together and we sing to him. And it's not the same thing when I'm alone or I'm home watching TV or listening to a sermon. It's not the same thing. So we go, first of all, to worship him. He calls us to worship. We're his people. And so we go, rain, snow, or shine, whether we want to or whether we don't want to, we go to bless him. And secondly, we go to receive from him. He nourishes us. He stoops down to us in the word and in his sacraments and gives us that which we need, things that we often don't even realize that we need. And the Reformation recovered this. And the third reason I was going to say is that we go also for communion with one another, which, again, you can't get over the Internet. Um, but the, the word and sacrament is what we, what we receive. And so... How to listen to a sermon is very important for uh, benefiting from the ministry of the Word. The Reformation recovered preaching. So, you know, Calvin and Bootser and uh, Occlampadius and and Zwingli and many others began preaching what we call Lectio Continua, going through whole books of the Bible. You know, you can still get Calvin's sermons you know, all the way through Ephesians, all the way through Galatians, you know, the, where he preached every single text. And uh, it's because we need the whole word of God. So this is very important. So how to, how to listen to a sermon? Before I give you the four questions, let's first talk about preparation. Let's talk just briefly about preparation. How do we... Prepare to listen to a sermon. Anybody want to take a, a guess at how do, we, how do we best prepare 
to listen to a sermon? Sorry? Prayer. Prayer is the most important thing. Prayer is the most important thing. Prayer for whom? For the minister? So, is that biblical? Yes. Where would we find that? Ephesians, in one place, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said uh, that we're to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Okay, so that's praying for one another, prayers of intercession. And he says, verse 19, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. So, um, prayer. Prayer is a huge one. Prayer for the, the one bringing the word, okay? So, pray for your pastor. We have no right ever to criticize a sermon if we weren't praying for that person to bring that sermon. Uh, preparing a sermon is hard work. Is difficult work. It's Greek, Hebrew, getting at what the text is, figuring it out, uh, boiling down all your exegesis to uh, what this text is mainly about and how to apply it and speak it in a way that people will understand and be able to follow. And it's peppered with cross-references, illustrations, and you connect well and you do it all in 30 minutes. It's hard work. And um, my sermons are, uh, each one is about 3,000 words, so it's 6,000 words every week uh, that, that I write, not counting the other stuff. Um, so it is work, and the pastor's constantly getting interrupted through the week, constantly, and, uh, and, and has other responsibilities, and he's got his own heart to, and soul to be concerned about. So pray for him. Pray for me. Pray for who, who, whomever is leading you. Pray for him regularly. Pray for his, his life, his communion with the Lord. Pray for his work. And uh, when he's alone in his study, and it's a lonely place there in his study, um, he is helping you become a disciple of Christ. So we want to pray. That's part of our preparation. Um, and then pray for yourselves. Pray for the congregation. Yourself, congregation. And this too, we find Paul in the same book of Ephesians. Um, praying for. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's his prayer for them. And then he prays it again in chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, may, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what Paul was praying for. That's what a pastor prays for. Not so much, we don't find all the prayers of supplication and pray for this person who's ill and that person who's ill and this person who has this need and that person. Those aren't in the New Testament. Now, they're not wrong. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. But we just have to have our priorities right. The, the higher priority, the higher priority for the apostle and for the pastor is to pray that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. More than that you will be uh, you know, physically healthy or wealthy or any of that, more than that is the concern that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. These prayers are in every one of Paul's epistles. And so we can enter into that prayer too. That's why he's saying in chapter 6, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. Pray for all the saints. So yet, it's perfectly fine to pray for the person who needs a job, to pray for the person who needs physical healing. But we always have to remember, first and foremost, we need to pray for our growth spiritually, that we will be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, that we will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. These are the things to pray for. And then how do we receive that? Paul goes on in chapter 4 to say it's through the ministry of the Word which Christ, having ascended into heaven, has given as a gift. He gave the ministry of the word, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, which were all part of the apostolic era, and the shepherds and teachers, the pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we grow through the ministry of the Word. And it's through the Word, as Paul says, that faith comes. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And that comes through preaching. And, uh, and then also we're strengthened through the preaching of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 16. So prayer is the biggest part of preparation. So in your prayers during the week, pray for these two things with regard to the ministry of the word, to what you will hear and receive. That's the, that's the first part of preparation. The, the second part of preparation, of course, would be uh, uh, more physical, mental, I guess, just um, uh, making it easier for ourselves to be in a posture of listening and receiving. So, you know, the Puritans used to talk about preparing on Saturday night. Now, again, these are areas of Christian liberty, you know, we don't want to, there's no law that's imposed about what time you need to go to bed or anything like that. But it's to use wisdom and common sense. 
um, if I can't, if I have the hardest time staying awake in a sermon, I got to ask why. You know, is it because you know I had to work the late shift? And okay, well, that's that's one thing. Was it because I, I was sick? You know, or my baby was up all night. That's totally understandable. Or was it because you know I I binged on you know watching something on Netflix, which I have done before. Um, and I just couldn't stop. I had to see the next episode, you know, of whatever it was. You know, and I knew it was so bad, but, oh, it was so good to watch it. And then, you know, the next morning, I'm like, oh. Um, or, you know, I'm, what about my kids? Are we getting to bed at a decent time? I mean, because here's the thing is that we have to, you know, before we say, oh, that's legalistic and we object. Well, okay, if you have to give a big presentation in the morning at work, are you going to go out and, to, and hang out late, late at night? Probably not. Okay, and in, in reality, which one is more important? And so we make priorities. You know, I, I'm amazed at how often we can be at work on time, all the time. And yet, um, when it comes to worship, it's like, eh, it's not as big of a deal. So we want to be prepared in that sense. I mean, do we value not only the worship of God, but also in, in what we're going to receive on that day. And, uh, and again, this is just something for ourselves. We don't want to compare. Everybody's different. You know, everyone's sleep patterns are different. Everyone's challenges are different. And we've got to let people be. That's just between you and the Lord. But I want to give that encouragement to you to, to be mindful of the fact that you're going to worship. You're going to worship, and you're going to hear God speak to you. And these are the means God has promised to bless. Uh, and we have it twice on the Lord's Day, morning and evening. So pray and uh, physically prepare. Okay, any questions on that before we go to the, the four main questions to ask of every sermon? All right, common sense pretty much, but, very, but it's biblical as well, uh, particularly with regard to prayer since that's, we find that everywhere in the New Testament. Yes? Yeah. Well, sometimes it was leftovers from a different denomination. For example, the Church of England, if it was an Anglican church or modeled after an Anglican church, uh, there, in many ways, was, were not those kinds of reforms in architecture given. Again, it's not that it's wrong, necessarily, to have it off to the side. It's not like, well, I can't go to a church where the pulpit's off to the side. Uh, you know, but it's just that there was, there was symbolism in the, church, in the pulpit coming to the center and being lifted up. Um, and heavy. It should be big and heavy. You don't want it light and airy. You know, um, people have sent me... People are always sending jokes to me, which I love. You know, they're just... The more wicked humor, the better. And uh, some people said, here's your new pulpit, Pastor, and it's some plexiglass, see-through, you know, light and airy. Ugh. Because the pulpit is supposed to give a sense of it's rooted and firm, like the Word of God. It's immovable. It's something that we come to each week, and it stays the same, you know, and yet the, the Word is always surprising. But big and lifted up and in the middle is, is on the continuum of wisdom, uh, a wiser way to go. But. So, to prepare for the sermon, uh, pray. Pray for the ministry of the word.
Pray for the pastor, just as Paul says. Pray that his, his labor and his work will be constructive. Pray that he won't get interrupted too many times. Pray that he'll have good study. Pray that he won't interrupt himself. And then prepare yourself, or pray for yourselves, uh, that you will know Christ more, and that you'll be ready, and then prepare when you come, you know, try to be well-rested and uh, prioritize. Uh, one other thing I should point out, too, about preparation nowadays is technology. And I know that, you know, a lot of us read our Bibles on um, iPads or phones, and that's fine. But um, if you find that, you know, maybe uh, if you're like me, where you're addicted to checking your uh, Facebook on your phone or your um, messages or your texts, just turn it off. It's better just give yourself a break. You know, we need to have a break. I've talked to so many people that go away on a vacation and they had a period of just break from technology and they say, wow, it was amazing how how I was able to focus on things again. And we do want to focus on what what we're hearing because we're hearing the ministry of God's word. And so uh, if we find that that's a better way to uh, be uh, prepared, then... um, then I want to encourage you to, to maybe you know, consider turning off the technology. Unless you are more disciplined than me and you're able to you know, look at your Bible app or whatever, that's fine, without checking you know, email and Facebook and that kind of thing. Um, one more thing. <laughs> one more thing before the questions. Before I forget. Note-taking. Note-taking. Should we take notes in a sermon? That is entirely up to you. I think uh, in a lot of evangelical churches, it was encouraged. You know, you've got to take notes. And if you're really pious, you're going to take notes. And um, I don't care if you take notes or not. I really don't. If you're able to follow the text, if you find that it helps you and you refer to them later, great, have at it. But uh, in many cases, you might miss something while you're writing, or maybe not, just depends on you. Um, but, you know, having the Bible open, because I'm a textual preacher, and any good preacher should be a textual preacher, uh, it, it, we, we want to be able to follow along with the text and see what's there. But hearing is the most important thing. Listening. Being able to recall. And so here's the four questions. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. You're absolutely right, Dan. And that's why we have in the bulletin, and it's been here for, since 2003, before the service begins, you are encouraged to pray silently or turn to the text or the first song of praise and meditate upon its words as we prepare to worship the living God. After the service, which closes with the benediction and a brief moment of silence, you are encouraged to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Again, it's always biblical, thoroughly biblical. Um, so yeah, that's a good, and then we also have the prayer of illumination, that prayer we have just before we hear the word, asking the Holy Spirit to do that work now. But we do, I think part of that is the prayer through the week. Part of our prayers through the week, along with all the needs that we have, should be these priorities that we see in the New Testament, praying for the ministry of the word, praying that the word will be effective in my life. I think sometimes we forget about those in our prayers for 
you know, I really, really, really need this new thing or, you know, whatever it is. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for that. Bring your needs to the Lord. But the priorities of Scripture show us that our growing in the knowledge of Christ is number one. Okay, so how, what should we ask of a sermon afterward? What do, we not, what do we don't ask? What's the question we don't ask? Yeah, did you like it? That's not the right sermon to ask. It might be a sermon that is true and good and you needed to hear and you didn't like it, and I'm happy. Because what matters is not whether or not you liked it. What matters or not is whether or not it was faithful to the Word of God. I've heard many things that bugged me, and later I realized that was right. That's what I needed. Because the Word of God is like that. Everybody loves Joel Osteen. They like it a lot. Just because we like something doesn't mean it's right. So we're not coming as consumers. Consumers are, do you like it? We ask, was it true? Was it true? Was it faithful to the Word of God? And so the first question, there's four questions you want to ask of every sermon. Train your kids, too. The first question is, uh, what was the text about? The text is what he, the minister was preaching on, because he's not getting in there just telling stories. At least a real minister won't. He's explaining a text. So what was the text about? So as we're going through 2 Samuel, you know, well, chapter 7 was about the covenant that God made with David. And then the second part of the chapter, the following week, well, that was about the prayer that David gave. And then chapter 8 was about the expansion of David's kingdom. And then today... Chapter 3, it's about the doctrine of justification by faith. But we should come away saying, yeah, I, know, I understand that text a little better. Because the minister, one thing he's to be doing is explaining the text. Now listen, we can hear some sermons that we really, really like and that are really, really true in the doctrine, but failed to do this. Charles Spurgeon was classic for this. This is why I'm not a fan of Charles Spurgeon. Oh! <gasps> Charles Spurgeon had great doctrine from the wrong text. He'd preach a text. It could be whatever, something from Leviticus. And he would run off the diving board, boing, and he would spring to John 3.16. And everything you're reading in is like, wow, he's preaching sin, he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching, and it's good stuff. And it has almost nothing to do with the text that he had that morning. And there were a lot of famous preachers like that. The first thing it has to do is be faithful to the text. And see, it's not, it's not fair to say, wow, what a great sermon, what a great preacher, if he didn't explain the text. Because in explaining the text, eh, it might not be as exciting. You know, there are certain texts where you're like, wow, I can't wait. I got Mephibosheth coming next week. Oh, that's good. That's gospel. Last week it was... Oh, man, chapter 8, all these battles and kingdom and, okay, where's Jesus and all this? But I've got to explain the text because I have to give an account. And so 
the first question we ask is, what was the text about? And we should be able to recall it and say, well, it was about Romans 3 today, you know, verses 10 through 26, and uh, he, he explained justification. Second question, what problem or sin of my heart did it reveal? In other words, did it bring out the law? So every text is going to have some focus on our fallen condition. Every text. There's going to be some problem that it's dealing with. So preaching on Genesis 1, God creating the heavens and the earth. Well, what problem is it dealing with there? What sin is it dealing with? Well, it could be dealing with my sin of not uh, worshiping God the creator. Not, not recognizing that I'm a creature and he's creator. And that I want to put myself over him. Every text, in some way, it, you know, especially as it's law, is dealing with some problem of our heart. Every imperative. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. I mean, it's, it's bringing out a problem of my heart. If I walk away from a sermon, I say, man, I was convicted of my sin. That doesn't mean that the, the preacher beat you up with the law. That means that the law was doing its work. I've sometimes heard um, folks misunderstand, thinking that, well, a Christ-centered sermon is going to be one where I don't feel convicted over my sin. Well, that's not true, because Christ only means anything if he's the solution to the problem. It has to reveal some problem of our heart. That's what the law does. And so, obviously, I mean, today it was a, was an, uh, is a softball, Right? I mean, what problem was it dealing with in our heart? Well, it's pretty obvious. None is righteous, no, not one. No seeks, none seeks after God. All have turned aside. You know, our problem is sin. But we have to ask this. And then we need to grow from that. We need to be humble enough in receiving the ministry of the word to recognize. And I'm, and I'm under this too, guys. I'm under the same ministry of the word that you are. And it, it's especially tough to serve it to others when you know you fall short. Um, but we have to have this question in our mind if we want to benefit from the, from the sermon. What problem of my heart did it reveal? And then, here's the, kind of the money question. How did it reveal Christ as the solution to the problem? So, gospel. So, for example, think of Second uh, Samuel chapter seven. We heard this, the text about uh, verses one through seventeen about God's covenant with David. Okay, it's all the stuff that God's going to do for David. What problem of my heart is that revealing? Well, one problem is it's revealing my failure to believe God's promises. It's revealing my failure to. Uh, recognize that God is faithful. So the sermon will always set up that problem somewhere early in the sermon. And then it's going to reveal ultimately Christ as the solution to that problem. 
And so, yes, God did everything he did for David in the covenant, and then that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And since he sent Christ, and he has promised us that in Christ he'll forgive our sins and raise us from the dead, you know, we have, we have much hope. That's a faithful sermon. It's preaching the text. It's preaching law. It's preaching gospel. It's bringing out Christ, even from the Old Testament. So it's always redemptive, historical. And then the fourth thing is, uh, how did it apply to me? How did it apply to my life? Or um, what is the response? What response does it require? Now, again, you might find that taking notes is helpful for you, and that's fine. If you want to take notes, great. But I don't want you to feel like you have to take notes. That's purely a, an, an individual choice. Now, obviously, kids, if their parents are telling them to take notes, they've got to obey their parents. But um, I, I know there's many people who they're able to listen and digest these things. I mean, if you pull out the notes later and you discuss them, wonderful. But if you take notes and never look at them, you know, I don't know, what's the point, really? Um, there have been studies done that writing things down helps your memory. So you find what works for you. You find what works for you is what I'm saying. But the key is these four things. What was the text about? Um, You can preach the right doctrine. In fact, someone wrote a book on this. I think it was D.A. Carson. The right doctrine from the wrong text. And uh, again, that's what Spurgeon and, um, and even some of the Puritans, that's what they would do. They would have one little verse... And then, I, you know, it cracks me up is when I hear people say, they got, he got so much out of one little verse. Well, he, yeah, because it wasn't in that verse. <laughs> uh, he was pulling it from everywhere else. He, he springboarded to someplace else. Now, that's not to say that we don't recognize, like if the, the sermon is about law, like the Ten Commandments, yeah, that's ultimately going to point us to Christ as the fulfillment the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. And now that's, not, that's just taking the text in its context, and that's okay. That's okay. What I'm saying what is wrong is if the text wasn't, itself wasn't explained. That's all. So the text has to be explained. What was the text about? What problem of my heart did it reveal? And then I need to ask myself that. It, because the, the sermon should be doing surgery on me. God's doing surgery. You know, I'm not coming in and agreeing, going, yep, yep, yep. Yep, that's all true. That's all right. Yep, yep, yep. Glad I believe that stuff. Okay, let's pray. That's not a sermon. That's a lecture. The sermon should be doing surgery. It should be catching me off guard even, saying, yeah, yeah, I've done that. And then revealing Christ as the solution. So grateful for Jesus Christ, who then gives me the strength and the power to now live in the way that I'm supposed to. And every sermon will have a response. Sometimes that response is very clear. I mean, if it's, you know, like when we were going through Ephesians, and, you know, it's things like, put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Well, that's pretty obvious. Maybe I need to speak the truth. What problem of the heart did it reveal? Well, it revealed my tendency to twist the truth, bend the truth, you know, look down on my neighbor. How did it reveal Christ as the solution? Well, again, looking at the, the larger context of Paul's letter, we see that Christ is the one who was never filled with falsehood, was never always speaking the truth with his neighbor. And so Jesus is the one who makes me right with God, even though I have failed. 
And yet God still wants me to live now according to his law. If we ask these four questions of each sermon, we will grow tremendously from the ministry of the word. We will grow. We will grow. If we don't ask any questions, we won't grow as much. We'll still grow. And if we approach it like a consumer, did you like it? We're just on dangerous ground. That's not the way. We have to approach it like a disciple, not like a consumer. Any questions on that? Yeah, John. Yeah. Right. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. But I'm saying that maybe that's not the best introduction to the dialogue. Maybe, you know, what would be better was, so what did you think about the sermon? Not so much did you like it. You know, again, I mean, I'll hear sometimes, oh, it was a great sermon. Well, I don't know what that person means necessarily by great, unless they tell me, you know, you really did explain the text. And then I said, and I'm grateful that the labor was good. You know, or they'll say, you know, you, you showed us how Christ was the solution to that. I'm grateful that I, I did my work. But they could just be saying, you know, um, I don't know, I like the way you sound. Or in their mind. Right. Sure. I know. That's why I'm giving you these questions. They're for discussion afterward. They're for asking yourself and also for creating a dialogue with your family. Is, you know, so, I mean, these are questions actually that we ask. Um, and, you know, then I create these ones too each week, you know, which have to do with that. You know, this sermon is about from what book of the Bible did the pastor preach? Which chapter? What were the main points of the sermon? And if they didn't get all the main points, you know, that's okay. Um, the, the goal of each sermon is not, okay, I caught all three points. Now I can draw. You know, um, that's not going to cause us to grow. Um, the, goal, the, the only point of having points, no pun intended, is uh, to just kind of be like floaties, you know, because it's a lot of information coming at you, you know, 30 minutes. And uh, it kind of helps you move along a little. Um, and then questions to discuss at home, you know, really, they're all dealing with this one right here. And then sometimes I bring out, you know, questions in here. You know, what is the doctrine of justification by faith alone? When God justifies us, what problem does he solve? What solution does God provide to this problem? What instrument does God, you know? And they're there each week. But the dialogue, yeah, this can create dialogue. What I'm trying to do is just help us to benefit more from the ministry of the word and how to recognize a good sermon. A good sermon is one that's going to do this. A good sermon is not necessarily one that just was really interesting and kept me awake. Or that, well, I love that text. Next week's text, eh. That's not a good ser- necessarily a good or bad sermon. A good sermon is it explained the text, it revealed, it preached the law, it revealed the problem of my heart from the text, it revealed Christ as the solution, and it called me to a response. Sometimes that response is simply rejoice or praise the Lord. But it, in those things, this is what Paul says the ministry of the word does. 
uh, he says, you'll be strengthened. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And this one's a big one, guys. Number three, if Christ doesn't show up in the sermon, it's not a Christian sermon. And you can sadly even go to a lot of Reformed or Presbyterian churches and hear a true sermon that explained the text, but it was all law, and, it, and, and Christ was never mentioned, or he, didn't, he wasn't revealed as the solution. And at the end of the day, you can say, well, a rabbi could have preached that. It did not require God in human flesh dying on a cross for it to be true. Jesus has to be preached according to uh, Romans 16, according to Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. By the word of Christ, which means gospel. Not just the word of God in general, but the word of Christ. This is what gives us the strength and the power to, to do this. So I'm just trying to help us, that's all. Uh, you know, um, again, if you find that, you know, did you like the sermon is, is a way to start a dialogue. But I'm trying to steer us away from just approaching preaching like consumers and having our favorite preachers and, and that sort of thing, but rather going through these four questions. All right, I've got to stop here because it's 12.15, but I'll, I'll stick around for, if you have any, any further questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray that we would benefit from it by the power of your spirit. We pray that we would be good listeners, Lord, that we would have our hearts opened by your spirit so that we may know more fully uh, what is the hope, what are the riches of salvation, uh, what is the love of Christ, Lord, that these things would be so, that we would continue to grow, that we would, humility would be produced in us, that Christ's likeness would, would flow forth uh, all, Lord, through the means that you've promised to bless uh, the ministry of your word. Thank you for this great gift. In Jesus' name, amen.